If Bill Monroe is the father of bluegrass, and certainly he was, then I would say Charlie Poole was certainly the grandfather of bluegrass music. The man had his mail delivered to the moment, and you hear it in his music. Fifty years before country music outlaws became so popular, there was a man who started it all, Charlie Poole. Hard living, hard drinking, trouble with the law, itchy feet. These are some of the stereotypes of the wild and free country singer. Charlie Poole lived it. But image only goes so far, and Poole's music filled in the rest. It's an electrifying sound, intense energy wrapped in precision. In Poole's hands, old time music made a big step towards what we consider country music, and had more than a little to do with the origins of bluegrass. You ain't talking to me, no you ain't talking to me. Maybe craving all like that for the God good sense you see. Charlie Poole didn't live for all that long, but what he left behind still fascinates us. It's like the story of blues man Robert Johnson. A short life, a few records, but just enough to change the music forever. Luckily, Charlie Poole's life story is not that mysterious, and in the next hour, we'll hear all about it. Producer Hank Zaposnik, writer Kenny Rohrer, and banjoists Tony Trishka and Bella Fleck join us for a look at the music, humor, and effect of Charlie Poole on the world. I'm a singer and songwriter myself, Laura Cantrell, and thanks for sitting down with me for a really good story. This is You Ain't Talking to Me, Charlie Poole and the Roots of Country Music. Let's get one thing straight. Back in the mid-1920s, Charlie Poole was the equivalent of a rock star. Right from the start, Poole hit it big, really big. Producer and old-time banjoist Hank Saposnik. 102,000 records in 1925. And by the way, this was a time that there were only 600,000 phonographs in the South. That means one in six people had his record. Let's hear the song that launched Charlie Poole into the world, Don't Let Your Deal Go Down Blues. Thank you. 
wanted to emulate the, the people whose records he heard. He, he, he knew that these, that these shellac discs really, really, he could, he could add something to it. And uh, he was right. No question. He was right. He, he only had to play a couple of measures of Don't Let Your Deal Go Down. And the guys at the Columbia Record Company said, you're happening. Charlie Poole's sound opened a lot of doors for him. We'll get the lowdown on that a little later. What's important to remember is that it was like nothing else. He took the instruments of a normal string band, the banjo, fiddle, and guitar, and exploded the possibilities of what they could sound like together. And lucky for us, he did that in front of a microphone. Producer Hank Saposnik. Most historians would date the beginning of country music on record, as we know it, to 1922. So that's three years. That's not a heck of a long time for people to think about country music as a genre. The country records that preceded him were really lovely and simple and, and elegant and stuff. Fiddle and voice, uh, uh, you know, fiddle and guitar, perhaps guitar and harmonica. And, uh, really, you know, great, but Poole, what he brought to that first recording session, nothing even remotely similar existed on record. But even Poole didn't realize how far-reaching his sound and his ideas. He had, he wasn't, pulled it wasn't, uh, you know, into posterity. Yeah, he, the man had his mail delivered to the moment. So all of the stuff, the outwash that this music, that his music created, bluegrass and country and everything, he would have been as surprised as anyone that, um, that, that all of this stuff came from his fertile imagination of inventing something that did not exist in any form before he did it. Charlie Poole was just doing what came naturally. He didn't care about the outcome so long as he could keep playing. But how Charlie Poole got started is an important part of that story. He was born and raised in the mill towns that dot the Piedmont Hills of North Carolina and southwestern Virginia. Everyone in town worked at the mill and knew each other, and they also entertained each other all day. Charlie grew up working at the factory, but he spent part of his day congregating with other musicians in the mill. Kenny Rohrer is a writer-musician and relative of Posey Rohrer, who played fiddle with Charlie Poole for many years. Kenny wrote a biography called Ramblin' Blues, The Life and Songs of Charlie Poole. He lives in the area where the mills used to be, though they closed down a long time ago. The mill villages helped develop this music in the sense that they helped concentrate it in one particular place where these musicians could exchange ideas and styles and songs and you know so on and so forth. Even though he could play music for part of his workday, Charlie Poole knew that he wanted to be a full-time musician. Hank Saposnik. His father was a mill worker, and mill work was seasonal. Mills opened and closed and so forth. So I think he grew up understanding that you can't hit a moving target. Music was his passport. Music was the thing that got him out of the mill towns. The mill towns that, in, in, in essence, created uh, a lot of his audience. That audience knew where Charlie Poole was coming from. Mill towns attracted a lot of mountain people, and this music was familiar to them. But they weren't the only people who came to the mills. The area around Spray, the um, mill owners, in an uncharacteristic moment of, of finesse and, and social consciousness, imported European music teachers to the area to, to teach the children and the, the mill workers music. I mean, the area was a hotbed of tremendous music. And Poole tapped into it and, and 
and harnessed that articulation and created this, this unbelievable sound. Here's Poole with his Milltown-trained North Carolina Ramblers from 1928. Roy Harvey plays guitar, Lonnie Austin on fiddle, and Poole on banjo, Shootin' Creek. Who's that knocking that door out there? That's me. No, it ain't no Roy Harvey. Hello, Roy. How you getting along? Hello, Charlie. Uh, Looks like you're having some music around here. Who's yes, that boy, you got I, with you there? That's old Lonnie Austin. Don't you know him? Oh, yeah. That's that old boy we used to play with up on Shooting Creek. Yes, boy. You remember that old tune you used to play Shooting Creek? Yes, boy. Have you got your guitar with you? I reckon I have got it. Boy, I suppose we had a little tune here. All right, just wait till I roll down my bridge and get these old shoes off and we'll go. All right. All right. I step on it. Charlie Poole and the North Carolina Ramblers with Shootin' Creek. That's the name of one of Charlie's favorite towns, and he had been to quite a few. The word rambler comes up a lot when you talk about Charlie Poole. What is rambling? According to Kenny Rohrer, it's wanderlust, and for Charlie Poole, it was a lifestyle. Charlie Poole just picked up his banjo and went wherever the wind blew him. Uh, I know Lonnie Austin said that he and Charlie would just start out walking, carrying their instrument cases. and. You know, eventually he said some guy would come along in a T-model or old Dodge automobile and see these guys walking beside of the highway, beside the road, carrying a banjo and a fiddling. And he said they'd climb in the back of the car and just take off with a total stranger. And Lonnie said the next thing you know, we'd end up in Stewart, Virginia, and 
we'd stay at some family's house maybe for a week or two and they'd feed us and we'd play for a dance at their house and Lonnie said we'd get out and help them lay the crops by you know help them work on the farm and he said then after a week or so at that house he said we'd get our instruments and head out on the road again. Charlie Poole's rambling touched Kenny Rohrer's life directly. Kenny's dad lived with Charlie Poole and his wife Lou Emma Rohrer for 10 years but Charlie wasn't much of a homebody. They, my dad said he'd be gone a month or six weeks and they'd have no idea where he was. But Daddy said when he'd come in the house, he usually had a sugar sack with him and said he'd dump it out on the bed and said it would be full of money. And his wife would sit there and count the money for him to figure out how much money he'd gotten, playing at dances and courthouses and schoolhouses and wherever he happened to be. He always seemed to draw a crowd. He rambled in a swell hotel, his appetite was stout. And when he fused to pay the bill, the landlord kicked him out. He reached and breaked his smacking with, and when he went to stop, the landlord kicked him over the fence right in the barrel of slop. And then he rambled, rambled. He rambled all around, in and out the town, and didn't he ramble, ramble. He rambled till the butchers cut him down. I'm Laura Cantrell, and you're listening to You Ain't Talking to Me, Charlie Poole and the Roots of Country Music. Poole traveled far and wide entertaining people along the way. He was their guest of honor, and they entertained in kind, mostly with plenty of liquor. Whiskey was Poole's drink, and he drank a lot. It's what ended his life at the age of 39. But while he lived, he made sure to drop by towns like Ferrum, Virginia, which had an interesting history of importing certain things. Writer and musician Kenny Rohr. 19 million pounds of sugar. Now, the sugar was, of course, used to make sugarhead liquor. took 10 pounds of sugar to make a gallon of whiskey. And you figure they brought into that little town, between January 28 and March of 35, 19 million pounds of sugar. Now, they weren't making a lot of whiskey. They weren't making a lot of cakes and pies, you know, in that town. Of course, whiskey was so common, and uh, it was just easy to get hold of. So it wasn't like he had to hunt for it. You know, people were offering it to him wherever he went, I suspect. And after a while, it probably took a strong character personality to turn all that down. <laughs> Poole didn't often turn down whiskey. In his first recording session, the producer even gave him a jug to help keep things going. Sometimes he'd miss the recording session, and sometimes he'd make fun of the whole situation. Producer and musician Hank Saposnik. He was getting over a serious bender at that time. I mean, he missed the day, the recording session the day before because he was plastered. He was totally looped. And what's the first thing he records when he comes in? Goodbye booze, as if he's going to say goodbye to booze. You could actually hear it. He's got this laid back kind of sound, almost, you know, slightly woozy. And it's, it's an infectious sound, but it's really there. His side-of-the-mouth vocals can't be anything but his kind of winking, nudging message to his, to his fans that they know they're listening to, to that record, and they say, oh, my God, it's old Charlie again. Here's Charlie Poole's ironic wink to his fans, Goodbye Booze. Oh, goodbye, booze. Forever. I we'll soon be old. 
Carolina Ramblers played Goodbye Booze, his inside joke to fans who knew what a serious drinker he was. If you had trouble figuring out exactly what he was singing, don't worry about it. Most people couldn't understand what the words were when Poole sang. Poole did this on purpose. Poole sang, you know, I mean, it's double talk. And this was his shtick. This was one of the things that he did. You know, it's like, in a way, Poole was like Miles Davis, you know, like you know, a lot of you know, Miles Davis would turn his back to the audience because he didn't want people to steal his fingerings. You know, it was a shtick, you know, but Poole would do the same thing. Poole and Miles Davis may have purposely obscured the way they sang and played, but there's one big difference. Poole did it for fun. His sense of humor couldn't be contained. Poole's recording of the novelty song Monkey on a String shows off his unintelligible singing. Producer Hank Zaposnik had to use another recording of the tune to figure out what Poole was doing to the lyrics. To have put on the Cal Stewart version, the, the, the earlier version that Poole listened to, where you actually hear all the words, you know, and you get a chance to hear what Poole was, was you know, obscuring and, and his kind of side-of-the-mouth, you know, garbled 
you know, kind of words. And and you realize you want to you want to talk about his sense of humor. It's right there. You know, his his ability to create, you know, words and language is still undiscovered. That was his sense of humor. Let's hear a bit of Cal Stewart's version of Monkey on a String. So now you remember the words. Let's hear what Charlie Poole does to them during his version of Monkey on a String. Monkey on a String, sung by Charlie Poole, in a way only he could understand. Poole's sense of humor was legendary, but don't discount his toughness as well. 
His wit got him out of a lot of trouble, but he didn't suffer any nonsense. Kenny Rohrer tells us one of the Charlie Poole stories that he heard growing up. Back then, bootleggers uh, selling moonshine whiskey tended to locate their bootlegging joints right along the North Carolina-Virginia line, so if the police came from North Carolina, they could flee into Virginia, or if they came from Virginia, they could flee into North Carolina, you know, that kind of thing. And they were playing one afternoon at a place uh, called Leaksville Junction, and this was a place where people drank and engaged in all other kinds of sundry activities. And the police raided the place while they were there. Well, now, Charlie and Posey and Norman were just there to uh, play music and entertain. They weren't running the bootlegging joint. They were just having a good time entertaining the customers. And one of the policemen there decided to pick on Poole when one of the cops came over to Charlie, and he knew Charlie, who knew who he was. He said, Poole, you consider yourself under arrest. And he said, Norman said, Charlie, not a guy to be trifled with, replied, consider hell. And he brought the banjo down across the policeman's head. And Norman said it looked like a necktie hanging down the front of the policeman with this real fancy inlay. Well, in the meantime, a policeman uh, pulled out his gun, stuck it in Charlie's ear, and was going to shoot Charlie in the head. And he said, Norman said just as he pulled the trigger, Charlie yanked the gun down and it went off at his mouth and it split his lips and chipped his teeth. He said Charlie really got mad then. He said he grabbed Posey's walking stick and he said he beat policemen all over the room. When they held his trial there in the Spray Courthouse, Judge Lane, who presided over the trial, noticed that Charlie did not have a lawyer. Judge Lane said to Charlie, the packed courtroom, and Charlie Poole said, Mr. Poole, I notice you don't have a lawyer. said, couldn't you use a good lawyer? Charlie stood up and said, no, Your Honor, but I could use some good witnesses. Well, his wife, Luemma, paid a $100 fine and kept him from going to jail. And it was a few years after this that Charlie Poole recorded the song called If I Lose, I Don't Care How Much I Lose. If I lose $100 while I'm trying to win a dime, my baby, she keeps money all the time. You know, that particular story of Charlie Poole really relates something about his music, his musical style, and his repertoire, and his personality. He was not a guy to be trifled with. Many of Poole's songs related directly to episodes from his life, and this one is no exception. Here's If I Lose, I Don't Care. Money all the time. 
teeth was so greasy and the meat was so fat. Boys was fighting the Spaniards while I was fighting that one morning, just four days. If I lose, let me lose. I don't care how much I lose. If I lose a hundred dollars while I'm trying to win a dime, for my baby, she keep money all the time. Ready to catch a freight train, they called old Nancy Hank one morning, just four days. If I lose, let me lose. I don't care how much I lose. If I lose a hundred dollars while I'm trying to win a dime, for my baby, she keeps money all the If I Lose, I Don't Care, played by Charlie Poole and the North Carolina Ramblers. People who seem to live for every moment tend to stand out in a crowd. To everyone he met, Poole had that kind of character. His larger-than-life personality also allowed him to live his life as an entertainer, playing music all the time. Along the way, he made a few improvements. In a minute, we'll hear about Poole's unique banjo style and how his sound and innovations made him the grandfather of bluegrass. Stay with us. I'm Laura Cantrell, and you're listening to You Ain't Talking to Me, Charlie Poole and the Roots of Country Music. Welcome back to You Ain't Talking to Me, Charlie Poole and the Roots of Country Music. I'm Laura Cantrell. Up until that point, uh, country music on record was a clear vision of the past. You heard where country music had been. You really got a sense of the, the grassroots nature of it. But with Poole, for the first time, we could actually look into the future. We actually saw where the music was going. We saw not only musical ideas, but an entire attitude about country music, about the hard-living and, and early-dying kind of country performer, uh, a country performer whose lyrics told where he's been. I suppose we take for granted that country songs are personal reflections of our experiences. Earlier, we heard Charlie Poole sing Goodbye Booze, and If I Lose, I Don't Care, all songs that relate to Poole's rambling, hard-drinking, and devil-may-care lifestyle. Funny, but Poole never really wrote any songs. What he did bring to them was his attitude and experience. 
it seemed like only he could bring out the meaning in the lyrics. Let's hear an example of this. First, a bit of the tune Moving Day, sung by Arthur Collins in 1906. Landlord says this morning to me, give me your key, this flat ain't free. I can't get no rent out of you, pack up your things and skidoo you. I said, wait until my bills come home. He's my honey from the honeycomb. He'll have money because he told me so this morning. Mm -mm. Now let's hear Charlie Poole in 1930 singing Moving Day in his own knowing way. Landlord said this morning to me, give me your key, slot ain't free. I can't get no rent out of you. Pack up your rag and skidoo you. I've been waiting till my bill come home. Keep my honey from the honeycomb. He'll have money cause he told me so this morning. He called this moving day. Moving day. I ripped the carpet up off the floor. Load you all stoving out the door. Cause moving day. Pack your bed quilts and get away. Give me spend ever since you can live out in a tent this moving day. Moving Day, sung by Charlie Poole and the North Carolina Ramblers. Poole had a way of making the lyrics seem like a personal story. That wasn't the only unique part of Poole's musical style. His banjo playing was decades ahead of its time. To understand why, let's go back a few decades in music history. Hank Saposnik. When, when Poole was born in, in the 1890s, uh, the banjo was the king of instruments in, in, in America. After the Civil War, there were great 
attempts made to elevate the instrument, to, to take uh, it out of its coarse associations with these kinds of minstrel shows and to create a sound that performers in tuxedos would be comfortable performing. And they lifted a guitar style, a Spanish guitar style, a finger style, and you had these virtuosos playing the banjo, playing Flight of the Bumblebee and, and Ride of the Valkyrie and, you know, all of these heavy of heavy songs. And it swept the nation. Poole played in that three-finger style taken from Spanish guitarists. Banjoist Bella Fleck gives us an example of what that sounds like. It's about the three-finger roll and playing a melody, bringing your thumb out. Bringing the melody of the song, whatever it is, out with your thumb, usually, and, and, uh, and surrounding that melody with, with a roll. Let's get some more background from another banjoist, Tony Trishka. Apparently, Charlie Poole's style... Uh, came out of the turn of the century so-called classic style or parlor style of banjo music, which was, it was a reaction to the minstrel era. The stuff just keeps telescoping back in time. And so in the minstrel era, they were playing in a so-called stroke style. And this isn't necessarily the right instrument for that, but it was very rhythmic. People consider that a little more rough hewn, of course, along with all the, what, of course, by, you know, we, we consider uh, offensive stereotypes uh, from those times. That whole thing was washed away, and there was a move towards finger picking uh, in the 1860s. And people were playing the three finger style in the 1860s. Uh, and I could play a tune in the 1870s that kind of it started moving towards parlor music, like I say, a more Europeanized version instead of Africanized version of the banjo. Uh, and this is somewhat what Charlie Poole was coming out of. So I'll start with a tune called um, Spanish Fandango. So that's Spanish Fandango, and that's taken out of a banjo book that I picked up at the Library of Congress, written in the 1870s. There's one roll throughout. It's a very simple sort of thing, but very pretty. That happens through the whole tune, that one thing. But as things move towards the turn of the century, um, some of the very first Edison cylinders featured banjo music, and it was getting very elaborate. A guy named Vess Ostman, another guy named Fred Van Epps, were the leading lights of the style, and they were playing with orchestras, dressing up in tuxedos, and it was becoming a very formal sort of thing. Uh, I will do a tune called the Plantation Symphony, again, written for the banjo.
so this is a fairly elaborate thing, and there's stuff that's even more elaborate than that. But that you know, it takes a certain amount of technical ability to be able to play that. It's not something that your average just kind of Sunday afternoon banjo player could play. So this stuff died out in the states, this parlor kind of banjo playing, but it was kept alive in the South through people that were playing the clawhammer style coming out of the minstrel era, and then other people listening to this style. I don't know for sure, but I can imagine Charlie Poole either hearing some of these recordings directly or learning from someone else who heard them. Charlie Poole not only heard many of these recordings, but tried to imitate them. Poole tried to make his music more upscale, like the banjo virtuoso Fred Van Epps. Sometimes it worked, and sometimes not. Let's hear one of his most successful and beautiful pieces of chamber music. This was based on Van Epps' Dixie Medley, but Poole makes it the Southern Medley. Well, Charlie, old boy, it's been a long time since you and I alone played any together, hasn't it? Yes, it has, boy. Let's try a few of those old Southern melodies for the boys. Uh, it does me good to hear you say that. Let's go. Good. Thank you. 
Banjoist Charlie Poole and his longtime guitarist Roy Harvey played a collection of tunes called Southern Medley based on a recording of Dixie Medley by banjo virtuoso Fred Van Epps. He soaked up as much music as he could from records and from traveling around and talking to people. All that information gave Poole a sound that was instantly recognizable and indispensable. Hank Saposnik. His fingerprints are just all over everything. Nothing passed through unchanged from Charlie Poole. You, and you, one way that you really, really get a tremendous sense of the gift that he brought to as an ensemble is to listen to the records of the other members of his group who, who went and recorded the same stuff that Poole had recorded with them, but they recorded it without him. And it's like listening to a stereo with one of the channels out. There's something tremendously vital missing from their performances, and no one else brought it to the fore like Charlie Poole. Singer Kelly Harrell used several of Charlie Poole's sidemen, like on this tune, My Wife, She's Gone and Left Me. So let's listen to the same song, but with the fire and drive that Charlie Poole brought to the music. My wife went away and she left me Out in this wide world alone Sadness and gladness she left me She left the doggone good home I wrote her a letter last Tuesday, sealed it with a kiss. The answer came back next morning, and what she said to me was this. When the gross man puts sand in our sugar, the milkman makes milk out of chalk. Boys stay home with their mothers, women forget how to talk. The ocean turns into corn whiskey The railroad runs under the sea And the man in the moon comes down the balloons And darling, I'll come back to thee Turns into raw whiskey 
Make glasses to see the wind When the girls quit using powder and paint Then darling, I'll ask you again My Wife Went Away and Left Me, performed by Charlie Poole and the North Carolina Ramblers. The other thing he brought to it, something that was completely antithetical to old-time music, was breaks. There were no breaks in old-time music. People played ensemble sound. You sat down, you played the tune full way through. Everyone who played melody played melody. You didn't have someone spring fully formed out of the ensemble to take a break. Well, Poole did. He lifted this fully formed from jazz. And people's ears must have exploded when they heard this. And years later, it became bluegrass. But back then, it was Charlie. It was Charlie Poole. Hank Saposnick hears the jazz-inspired breaks that Charlie Poole included for the first time in old-time music. And banjoist Tony Trishka hears more jazz than that. Listening to the North Carolina Ramblers, you sort of get that sense with what the guitar is doing, what Charlie Poole is doing. It's leaning forward a little bit, and there's a there's a drive to it. Uh, some people describe it as a swing. It's almost a swing feel to their groove. So let's hear a tune that has both a swinging feel and a banjo and piano break where the violins drop out for a while. Here's Charlie Poole with the Highlanders on Lynchburg Town.
Charlie Poole and the Highlanders played Lynchburg Town, an example of the swing feel and the first use of breaks in old-time music. Writer and musician Kenny Rohrer. He didn't sound like anybody else. He had a, a unique style. And you wouldn't hear a sound like that again until you get to Bill Monroe in the late 1940s and early 1950s when he used a similar sound with twin fiddles and instrumental breaks uh, by the various instruments in the middle of the record. Uh, Poole was really ahead of his time in that respect, kind of kind of a grandfather of bluegrass. If Bill Monroe is the father of bluegrass, and certainly he was, then I would say Charlie Poole was certainly the grandfather of bluegrass music. Peabody award-winning producer Hank Sapoznik. Poole, you know, brought that core ensemble sound that still a bluegrass band cannot function without that core ensemble sound that Poole invented. Let's, you know, if you listen to, let's say, uh, Poole's biggest rival on the Columbia label, which was the Skillet Lickers, Gib Tanner and the Skillet Lickers, hell-bent for leather sound, unbelievably unrestrained, wild, crazed fiddles, uh, guitar runs that sound like they come from, you know, a Stravinsky piece. I mean, totally just uninhibited playing. So this is what Gid Tanner and the Skillet Liquor sounded like. this measured, articulate, constrained, but still dynamic sound. Why doesn't bluegrass sound like the skillet lickers? It doesn't sound like the skillet lickers. It sounds like pool with its unbelievably articulated striations. Every part, it's like a geological outwash. You really see the levels. You see the way the guitar and the banjo in crisscrossing cascading uh, arpeggios really create this unbelievably moving and fluid line. Here's Floppier Mule. Floppier Mule, a prototype of bluegrass music played by Charlie Poole and the Highlanders. To finish off our look at the influential life and music of Charlie Poole, here's Kenny Rohrer and Hank Sapoznik. He died in 1931, and there are people in North Carolina now who still will remember his shows. They'll tell you stuff that he did on stage. You know, I mean, you know, we live in a society, we can't remember what was on TV last Thursday. 
But there are people who still remember this thing. He was Jack Daniels' black label. He was the real thing. I mean, when you when you hear Charlie Poole sing, you know, that North Carolina accent of his, you know, he, he was a genuine article. He, he was really, uh, he was bona fide. He knew whereof he spoke. He sang like he talked, and he talked like he sang. And there's just certain honesty to that. Uh, there was no pretense to him. He was quite a showman, quite an entertainer, and people loved to see him come. They knew when Charlie Poole showed up, they were going to have a good time. You Ain't Talking to Me, Charlie Poole and the Roots of Country Music, was produced by Joyride Media, Paul Chufo, and Josh Jackson, producers. Our executive producer is John Vernile. All songs in this program come from the Columbia Legacy box sets, You Ain't Talking to Me, Charlie Poole and the Roots of Country Music, and Can't You Hear Me Callin', Bluegrass, 80 Years of American Music. Special thanks to Steve Berkowitz, Adam Block, Bella Fleck, John Jackson, Jeff Jones, Kenny Rohrer, Hank Saposnik, and Tony Trishka. I'm Laura Cantrell. Thanks for listening.